Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, a conversation with Holly Throsby, author of Cedar Valley and Goodwood. Throsby's latest novel, Clark, is ostensibly about the disappearance of Ginny Lawson, a woman who vanished from her South Clark home in 1985. In 1991, the police come to search her former backyard for her body, but the current resident of the house, Barney Clark, has a story of his own, as does his neighbour, Leonie Wallace. Here's the host of the interview, Chris Gordon. Hello, my name is Chris Gordon and I work at Readings and I'm delighted to be introducing you, our dear listeners, to Holly Throsby. She is already known across Australia as a musician. She's got five solo albums. She's a songwriter and she's a novelist. And today we are going to be talking about her third novel, which is called Clark. And it is a big-hearted, emotional mystery rather than crime type of novel. Welcome, Holly. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's a complete treat to have someone like you on the Readings Podcast. We are all delighted. This is your third book and all of them have in some ways a sense of history and a sense of mystery about them. And they've all centred on small towns. Let's just start by talking about why you centre on small towns, why you the Midsummer Murders of Australia writer. (laughs) People have used that Midsummer Murders reference to me before and I've never seen or read. Is it a book or a show? You know, it's a very long, long show that's been running for a long time on the ABC and I guess the reason that we make links between you two is because they're all set in these kind of beautiful country towns and they centre on the people that live in the town. The sort of the crux of it all is not really what it's about. It's more about the people of the town. Yes, well, then that is a very fair comparison. I think I was drawn to the idea of small town setting really because I recorded the majority of my albums in small towns and in the South Coast region of New South Wales. So my first and second album were recorded up on Saddleback Mountain, which for people in New South Wales, it's right near Kiama and Jamboree. And then I recorded in the Kangaroo Valley and I recorded in Wilds Meadow, which is on the Southern Highlands. So when I started writing fiction, I started with Goodwood and that was a town that an amalgamation of all of these little towns that I had visited and had a great affection for on the south coast of New South Wales. But as a touring musician as well, I have travelled interstate a great deal and have always really enjoyed travel within regional Australia and stopping off at as many places as I could and, you know, visiting roadside attractions and going to antique stores and going to the local cafe and reading what was on the local community notice board and all of those types of experiences as a travelling musician, which I really wasn't exposed to when I was younger because I was a total city kid. I grew up in in the inner west in Sydney. I grew very fond of those things and I think that I just located a lot of my creative energies in sort of small town settings from, yeah, from both touring and recording. And so I started with Goodwood 
which is a very small town. The next book is called Cedar Valley, which is a slightly bigger town. And then this new book, Clark, is the very big regional centre, a much bigger place where people can be afforded some degree of anonymity but, again, can feel claustrophobic to people who have lived there their whole lives and that same kind of everybody knows everybody feeling can still pervade certain pockets. And it was interesting going from, a you know, an extremely small community in Goodwood to this slightly more well, some characters describe it as character-less place, <laughs> Clark, and it's got the kind of shopping plaza. I love those descriptions of the shopping plaza. We all understand, if you've grown up in Australia, we all understand those spaces. Well, I think the thing about, someone said to me yesterday, how did you really nail the the regional shopping plaza? And I said, well, they're all the same. I mean, I don't think it's difficult for people of a certain age to nail what it's like to go to a regional shopping centre in the early 90s because if you'd been to one, you've been to so many of them. And I think that's where wherein lies their comfort for a lot of people. I really enjoyed so many of your descriptions of the plaza, which is sort of in a way a recurring character in in this particular book, Clark. But I also enjoyed uh, the sort of references to the uh, town's newspaper, you know, because I also love to travel into those sort of country towns and I always pick up in the cafes the local free paper just to see what's happening, to see what's made the top three three, uh, pages. Well, yeah, I mean, there's some towns, there's a town in New South Wales called Dorigo, which still has a printed newspaper that's printed on an old-fashioned newspaper press. And it's great. You get, you know, the the price and weight of cattle at the recent cattle auctions. And you get that kind of these sort of delights of regional life that can seem quite quaint to a, to a city person, but that are just gorgeous to me. And I, I feel um, that, yeah, I, I called the newspaper in that features in all three of these books, The Gather Region Advocate, because the fictional universe is called The Gather Region. And it is a shame to me whenever I see local newspapers closing down and the fact, you know, a newspaper that syndicates across the whole country. I think local news whether it be an oral tradition, which you do get a lot in small towns, or just as very small print editions of news is really important. It's the community notice board is the heart of a lot of towns. I hear you. I hear you. What I was uh, particularly taken with this novel, Clark, is it's considered a mystery or a crime novel, but actually at the heart of it I really felt like that this was a novel that celebrated not just the location, but the friendships that are in it, and in particular female friendships. You know, I'm thinking about that main character, Leonie, and the two women that she interacts with most, the person that lives across the road with her and the person that she shares the workplace with. Those female friendships are the ones that are her life, really. Was that a very deliberate sort of approach that you took for this novel, that this was going to be something that celebrated the way that women talk and support one another? No, I certainly don't want to make any kind of, you know, political or cultural comment really. I just like to write interactions, face-to-face interactions between characters and I guess to me, I mean, the relationships really, if your relationships are good, that's probably the most important thing in your life. I mean, that's probably going to be the thing that enables you to either be resilient or not. And I think that I naturally uh, had Leonie interacting with Dory, who lives across the street, who's an older woman, who's sort of her best friend, and then Wanda, who she works at Harvey World Travel with, because Leonie is a travel agent who has never travelled, which I, (laughs) for some reason, was quite a poignant idea to me. But 
I think the book does celebrate, yes, female friendship, middle-aged friendships, friendship between people who might not ordinarily find a connection with each other because of their proximity being, you know, like an idea of neighbourhoodship, if that's a word. I do really enjoy those types of connections myself and sometimes when I find a connection with someone who might be from a completely different background, a cultural background, a different demographic, different gender, a different age, some of my most important people in my life are those people that the connection is rather unexpected And I do think that connections that are slightly less common, even the connection between Leonie and Joe, who's a four-year-old boy in her care, I'm interested in, you know, a non-biological mother, in inverted commas, because she's not his mother, but those notions of parenthood, of connection, they were all running through the book. And it's not really until I get to the end of the first draft and I look back and I think, oh, look, here's what I've done. And then in subsequent drafts can try to build colour into those connections. I really enjoyed reading about the phone calls between the two neighbours, even though they're literally in my head, you know, less than 100 metres away. They call and they take comfort in seeing each other from the windows. There she is in her nighty. There she is. We're just going to touch base every day a couple of times just to see what's happening. No need for small talk straight into whatever (laughs) it is that they're thinking about. Yeah, I think that the book is full of those daily acts of connection and kindness which can be extremely sustaining and which we can often not quite notice in our own lives. Mm. I've always been, you know, in my songwriting and in novel writing, things that are quite mundane or quotidian do really appeal to me and I think that it's nice to to just create a sense of a community where people offer each other comfort quite accidentally. It didn't make me weep but it certainly caught my heart quite a few times just with the simple acts of kindness that you're referring to, the neighbourly sense that people are looking out for each other, I thought was incredibly important and not something that we see in every novel. We're so quick to go to the hard edges now, I think, in Australia, and here you are bringing us right back down to the neighbourhood street where we are looking out for our neighbours and we do know when a dog goes missing and we do know when there's been say, violence being committed in next door. I know that many people have said, and you say yourself in the acknowledgements, that this novel was inspired by Lynette Dawson and the podcast. How did you become obsessed with that podcast, with The Teacher's Pet, and and why did you feel like that this was a story that needed to be told from another angle? Before that, there were so many other podcasts, you know, whether it was Serial or all the sort of true crime podcasts that a lot of us have become obsessed with in recent years. And now much like, you know, much like the choice on Netflix or Stan or whatever, there are so many podcasts to listen to. I was touring Cedar Valley at the time that I was listening to that podcast. And look, it it really just came out of the idea that a specific point in that case was the fact that the police eventually went to the home in Bayview that Lynette Dawson shared with her former husband 
And the people that lived in the house didn't know the history of the house when the police arrived to do this search. I mean, I'm not sure at what point they were sort of notified, but they were living in this house without understanding the history of it. And I guess that was really the point that sparked my interest because in this book it starts with one of the main characters, Barney Clark. He's in a lot of pain, Barney, and he's in his bed shorts and the police arrive at the search warrant and he has no idea that he was living in this house. And, of course, once he starts thinking about it, he realises that he'd heard of this missing woman six years ago, but he'd had no idea that he was renting that house. And so that was really that was really the point of the Lynette Dawson case that piqued my interest in regards to fiction because I thought, well, how would I feel if the police came one morning and I was living in this house and there potentially was a body in my garden? And just how you would respond on a human level, and these books are all set pre-internet, so obviously he can't Google it, so what would he do? And then how would that draw him out of what is his, as we start the book, this very lonely sort of shell of grief that he's in, some silver lining around them that could then draw him into connections with other people that may then help him. And so that that was sort of where I started. And as I went through, because I had started at that point, there are some references to the Lynette Dawson case. But I think the thing about that case is because I now have listened to so many more podcasts since then, that was probably one of my first podcast obsessions because I was a little bit slow to the medium, I must say. But I think it's very common, sadly, when you have a victim who is either a woman, someone who is in any kind of marginalised position in society, whether that's by, you know, by nature of the work they do, the colour of their skin, what their cultural background, whatever, that police can often not do nearly enough would probably be a nice way of putting it. And so I was also interested in having a book that deals with crime and deals with some nature of police procedure but that is really not a police procedural at all and that really just looks at the police in the background through the eyes of Leone and Barney. So uses in a way like the structure or the tropes of a crime novel but uses that to then subvert the expectations potentially of that genre and have the book to be about something else entirely, as you said, which is really about these people and how the crime has affected their lives. I know that everyone that's listening to this podcast, let me first say, will pick up this book and read it because it's the type of book that you read very quickly. It's the type of book that you read over a weekend and when you put it down, you do spend some time looking around and I dropped some strawberry jam off at my neighbours within the hour of finishing it and I will think that that was about you, Holly, inspiration (laughs) of just making sure that I was in close cahoots with my own neighbour. But much of the action of this book, which is about essentially about a woman who goes missing, who's obviously a victim of domestic crime, but most of the action is told through conversations. It's not like you have huge passages of description of surrounds or feelings everything is about the relationships that is in these novels between these people that are affected by an act of domestic violence some would say Holly and I don't know whether you would say this some would say that this is actually one of those kind of subversive great feminist novels (laughs) um oh I like that I'll I'll (laughs) I'll good 
I've heard that because when I was studying English literature and doing English at uni and doing English at high school, I never heard the term show, not tell, which someone mm. used, has used recently to describe my book. And I thought that's exactly what I was doing, but I didn't know that there was a, a, a word for that. Of course there's a word for that. There's a word for everything when you study. <laughs> but I just hadn't really thought about it. But I, that was a conscious decision because when I wrote Goodwood, I was using first-person narration. There was a lot of tell. There was, a, there, you know, there was a lot of digression and backstory, and that's kind of that suited the voice of Goodwood of, of Jean who narrates that story. This book, I use the close third person, which has become my favorite style of writing. I use it in Cedar Valley as well. So it's very easy to see where in Barney's perspective or Leone's perspective. But that's exactly right. I didn't want to overwrite and I certainly didn't want to give too much and I wanted all of the revelation to come from conversation and interaction between people and for the reader to be there almost as you know almost as a witness to all of this and that's how the reader then discovers what's happening and I feel like that's just a really lovely way to reveal. I mean, it's much more filmic, I guess. It's sort of it it's the way that we watch film and television is that we see these interactions and we then deduce. And when I was writing this, I certainly felt that's a kind of pace of revelation and the technique of revelation that I wanted to use. And it seemed to sort of suit the story and the characters. When we think about Barney and him living in this house where potentially there is a woman's body buried in the backyard or even underneath the very place that he sleeps. And he is already suffering from some grief, from some loss. When I keep thinking about this character of Barney and he says throughout the novel, he's saying, Oh, I must tell, I must tell Deb that. I must something will happen in his day. And he thinks, I must tell my my wife this. His relationship with his wife is is no more. And we won't give that away. But just that sort of the importance of sharing what happens in your day, the importance of sharing conversations. And I wondered, because that seems to me to be a theme in your previous novels, but also in your music, is that something that have you grown up in a in a family that talks and talks and talks? <laughs> or are you a, a sort of a singular person and actually that's just what it seems like to you on the outside and that everybody's talking and you're watching? No, I certainly am a talker. But I'm also quite introverted at the same time. Like my absolute preferred mode of communication is one-on-one communication. I hate small talk. It's really my least favourite thing in the world. But, yeah, I mean, when you said that in my music, I've certainly got a, a song like Duet, that duet that I performed with Mark Kozlek, which is called What Do You Say, which is literally about the desire to get home at the end of the day and share your day with your partner. And I, I do think whether you're in a romantic partnership or you have, you know, if you phone a friend for whatever reason, I mean, I talk to my dog, you know, (laughs) even if you're talking just to a piece of paper and writing stuff down in a journal, I, I do think that humans are certainly not meant to be islands. And we are certainly, even if we're not naturally inclined to share, it certainly helps. For me, the fact that Barney can no longer share anything with his wife, Deb, and that she's completely unavailable to him and not present in his life. To me, again, much like Leone, who's a travel agent that never travels, to me the idea of Barney being desperate to share with someone who's no longer there, it kind of killed me, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
quite heart-wrenching actually. It's a very sad reflex that he can't seem to get out of and it, no matter what he thinks about his instinctual reflexes, I need to tell Dev and then he quickly realises, of course, I can't. And I think that's probably just part of as well in my mind a, a grieving process. It takes so long to, to process loss and I think that we have in Leone and in Barney these examples of people who are trying very hard to process loss in different ways, trying to avoid pain, trying to avoid confronting things that have happened. And it was in some ways an exploration of what that can look like. I really do think that you nailed it, Holly, actually. When I was reading your your novel, I thought about Leonie and her grief and I thought about Barney and his grief and I thought about how many people there must be there must be so many people out there in the world right now that are having similar thoughts, that are doing a Leonie and swallowing down emotion or are having to remind themselves that they've lost someone and that that person can't be next to them anymore for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. I don't want anyone that is listening to this podcast to think that this is a sad novel, though. It does finish, I think, on a beautiful, optimistic note, strangely enough for a mystery the final line will stay with you but I'm not going to spoil it but <laughs> genius Holly that was genius <laughs> I, yeah it's funny because my partner read the book and she said god it's so sad and I I think it is very sad but it's also intentionally very funny and I do think at the same time she was reading it in bed next to me and I she laughed a lot as well so I sort of think I do always try and temper that sadness and as you said there's a lot of darkness in the book the violence and you know that the crime that has taken place in the book is is very harrowing but at the same time the way that Leonie moves through the world is with great lightness and humor and it turns out that Barney is actually quite funny himself so I enjoyed very much writing that dialogue um, and writing their interactions and also the tone of the book itself is you know, I enjoy writers like Richard Yates, for example, or Jeffrey Eugenides and the Virgin Suicides, who yeah. write books that are about some of the most traumatic subject matter you could read, but that you would never think these are dark books. You would think they're so full of humanity and warmth. To me, that the tempering of those things is is their skill, and that's something that has certainly influenced me. Do you read crime novels? Are you one of these people that sort of has a pile of you know, contemporary crime novels next to your bed? I read less and less and less crime. Mm. You know, sometimes I could I find it a little tired, I guess. It depends on what I'm reading. I do like to read contemporary Australian crime just because I like to know what's going on and I also really enjoy a lot of the books. Yeah. Um, for example, Dervla McTiernan I think writes really great mm. crime books. In terms of my favourite Australian crime books, I loved Emily Maguire's An Isolated Incident, which probably doesn't necessarily sit in the crime section. It's more of a no. literary but it's a little bit like you, actually, isn't it? Like it's not. Well, yeah, it's more character driven. I, I thought it was really satisfying. I love The Broken Shore. I love all of Helen Garner's true crime books. And, you know, in terms of American crime, In Cold Blood's one of my favorite books. I love No Country for Old Men, which again is a literary crime book, but it's just a total ripper. So I do, I do prefer the more literary side of crime books. Do you think it's just that in those books we know, as we do in yours, that the observations are going to be so astute in that way that we know that there's always going to be a connection to our life just be through their 
the author's skill of observing what's happening in in everyday life. What do what do you reckon it is? Like I know exactly what you mean, but I often wonder when people read a certain genre. And your book is going to be difficult. It's going to be, uh, you know, in the crime section, but it's also going to be in the literary section, and it's going to be in Australian fiction. So there's a, it covers a whole range. But what draws us to one type of book to another? And I often think. When we look at sort of these ones, it's, it's about the observations. It's about what what the author is saying to us about the way that a person chooses the pastry that we can relate to, or the way that <laughs> a person, you know, waves to their friend who's got a much better choice of a nighty over there on the other side <laughs> of the road. <laughs> you know, like it's those tiny little observations. I guess that's just in the writing, isn't it? I mean, I, I guess to me what I was going to say is around reading crime I do still read real genre crime I'll yeah. probably read three or four crime books a year that are real proper genre crime but the rest of the time I read literary fiction and then why am I drawn to that book oftentimes it's the actual storyline so I look at the book and I say well that sounds like an interesting storyline like I'll pick up Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason and think oh I feel immediately connected to the idea of women of that age with mental health issues and relationship issues and living in different countries and connections between siblings or all of those kinds of things like that draws me in but then recently I've fallen in love with Emily St John Mandel and I've read Sea of Tranquility in Station Eleven and I wouldn't usually think that speculative fiction was something that would interest me necessarily or like post-apocalyptic fiction like if you'd said that to me I'd be like oh it's not really my interest but then the writing is just so good and the characters are so beautiful and there's that similar humor optimism warmth humanity it makes you really reassess everything it made me it made me appreciate the present day more than I have in a long time so to me I think we have gone through a rough few years (laughs) but I think you know same with Sarah Whitman's still life historical fiction is not something that I think oh yes I will read historical fiction but that book I just adored probably for all the same reason. I wanted to be friends with all of the characters. I wanted to have dinner with them. I wanted to be in the hotel in Florence. You Three know, at a time if you don't mind. Three at a time. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's that thing of... To me now as a writer, and I can now, you've written three novels, I am a writer, like I've, and I'm going to write another one. You know, it takes a while to not think you're a total fraud, but now I'm reading for writing more than I'm reading for plot or genre or story, and that will govern how much I like or dislike a book. And it's that often just comes down to personal taste, its tone, its style, its word choice, its character, it's everything, you know. And then also I guess an authorial voice because what you're talking about as well is you know if you if you're writing a crime book and you're using humor and and a warm tone then that's an authorial voice it's not a kind of cynical dark cold world where people are inherently kind of shit and sometimes it's really interesting going into those worlds but maybe you're right that we've had a rough few years and it's nicer to maybe go into nicer worlds I mean this is why I haven't actually watched Succession even though everyone tells me it's really good but brutal I mean maybe in a few years I'll be ready for brutal but not right now (laughs) that's fair talking of brutal though I will say that I thought that your caricature of Queensland (laughs) was was apt at at, at times but I was like I wonder if Holly does like Brisbane or not it seems to (laughs) I don't know whether she does I'm going to Brisbane on Wednesday no I have a a great fondness for all states and territories No, that was actually a, that was actually a teacher's pet reference in that that Chris Dawson had moved to Queensland. So I sort of inserted that as a slight nod to the teacher's pet, as a slight um, homage. 
We've nearly run out of time, sadly. I feel like I could talk to you for many, many hours. But I did want to say to you on behalf of the readings community, congratulations on your third novel. I do believe that it is going to be one of those books that people can take to the beach. They can relax into it. They're not going to be frightened to launch into it, but yet it's going to keep them on their toes because you have layered mysteries throughout it. Even if you are familiar with A Teacher's Pet, please, this is um, this goes beyond that. I wondered if you could tell me what you're going to read over Christmas. I know we've talked a little about books, but I want to know what you're going to read over the long summer days. What's on the list? Oh, God, what is on my list? I'm going to read The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel, which came between yeah. the two books that I've just read of hers. I just got given... Dreamers and Schemers, which is the new Frank Bongiorno book, Australian political history book. I'm very interested in politics and I will no doubt read that. I just got sent from my publisher the recent Booker Prize winning book. I always like to read. Yeah, I like to read them too. I don't always understand them, but I like to read them. (laughs) Well, I I read The Promise and I really, really enjoyed that. I mean, again, that's a very dark and bleak world, but also sharply funny. And the way that he uses narrative in that and perspective I thought was really fascinating so that you know I've always enjoyed that and I they also sent me the new Barbara Kingsolver and I'm a I'm a fan of Barbara Kingsolver so I'm sure they'll a new book as well I think that you'll love that Holly what are you going to listen to probably some podcasts and some music (laughs) yeah I listen to I listen to a lot of instrumental music not because I'm writing to it just because I like having it on in the house at the moment I listen to a lot of Alice Coltrane I listened to Thelonious Monk. I listened to an Ethiopian pianist who, um, called Emma Hoy, who is a fantastic pianist who I listen to a lot. And so, yeah, I tend, I do tend to listen to a lot of instrumental music. We're also listening to a lot of King Stingray, which is a band that we've <laughs> recently discovered who who been, we've been playing a lot in the house. So, yeah, and probably a lot of podcasts. My favourite podcast genres tend to be either crime or psychology or Buddhism. So it'll be one <laughs> of either of those disparate genres, although in some ways I think psychology and Buddhism are extremely connected. But, yeah, that's probably what I'll be listening to. It's going to be busy. It's busy in your house. Holly, thank you so much for your time. And again, congratulations on your third novel, Clark. I've been talking to Holly Throsby. She's an extraordinarily talented woman and it's been a complete and utter treat. Thank you for having me. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter for Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I would like to acknowledge traditional owners of the land and pay my earnest respects to the elders past, present and those who will come. Thank you.